Brentwood itself is a wonderful community. It's its own. I mean, you mentioned that there are something like 200 neighborhoods in L.A. I don't know how many of them have that feeling. I'd say the one common denominator is probably people are of a certain median income here, you know, in order to just afford to live here. I mean, if I were to try to buy this house today, you know, you probably forget it. But yeah, you know, it's been so long um, that it's not an issue. Hello and welcome to Here in LA, Brentwood edition. Today we talk with Lauren Stevens. Lauren is a longtime resident of Brentwood, having lived in the same beautiful home since the 1980s. Sadly, that place is also very close to where Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman murdered. We will talk about what it was like to live in such close proximity as the trial of the century and OJ's subsequent civil trial went on for years and turned the posh neighborhood into what she remembers as a circus, reeking of impolite murder tourists and members of the press. Lauren's love of books and writing. She writes, edits, and co-writes. She even ghostwrites autobiographies of fascinating people. We'll talk about all that too. Lauren raised a son in Brentwood, says she would do it again, gushes over schools in her neighborhood, as well as the small town vibe where store owners remember the locals and treat them like family. She even treated me to some delicious cookies from a local shop. What an angel! So please welcome Lauren Stevens. Hey everybody, I am here in beautiful Brentwood, California, the neighborhood of Brentwood, with Lauren Stevens. Yay! <laughs> thank you for having me in your beautiful home. Well, thank you for being here, Tony. So, um, I'm going to take some pictures of Lauren's incredible place. First of all, your taste is out of control. Thank you. You have original art everywhere. Everything is also like, brand, it seems brand new and clean. Is Are your floors new? Well, the truth of the matter is, is that about five or six years ago, our house burned down. This burned down? Yes. Yes. I was, you know, it's the expression, no good deed goes unpunished. Uh-huh. I was remodeling my husband's bathroom, which, by the way, he didn't care whether I had done it or not. But I'm kind of fussy. Mm. And so I brought in um, a designer and we, you know, redid his bathroom. And it was, you know, the, the last word in style and what have you. It was the last day of the remodel. And I had picked out a waterfall faucet which was a little tricky to install but the plumber assured me that everything would be just fine well it wasn't and he ran over to orchard i think it was and picked out a blowtorch and his idea was he was going to solder this onto the fixture and that's how he was going to make this all happen well the wall was closed up with all of the tiling and the ember 
went up through the wall, up to the ceiling, blew off my roof, and the house caught on fire. So we had, within 10 minutes, which is one of the amazing things about Brentwood, uh, as opposed to some other parts of the city that may not be as well served, we had 140 firemen here, oh my goodness. 14 trucks, some of those cherry pickers, you know, that sort of cantilever up over the roof of the house mm-hmm. because they were afraid that um, the fire would travel from one tree to another and yeah. catch the rest of the neighborhood on fire. So by the time the fire was put out, um, the house was completely demolished. No. I lost everything other than the paintings on the wall, which the firemen grabbed and threw out onto the street. And you know the expression of fire sale? (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of what it looked like. And um, everything in the house that had a motherboard, you know, that had any electrical whatever, including the the ovens, the refrigerators, the what have yous, had to be discarded. All the the clothing had to be given away because the smoke entered into it. Mm. Um, And we were out of here for a year and a half while the house was rebuilt. Um, the footprint stayed the same, yeah. but other than that, um, the house had to be completely redone. So, Tony, you're right. These are new floors. It's new everything. New everything. New, you know, canned lighting, new new furniture. Mm-hmm. I was able to, as I say, I, we were able to save the artwork, which would have been devastating if that had been lost. This artwork that I'm looking at was yeah, here during some the of fire? It, some of it. And they were able to throw it out the door. Good for them. And then I found um, a restorer because uh, even if you have glass over your objects, the soot gets in behind. Mm-hmm. So everything has to be cleaned. You, you know, Okay. Again, I wish you could all be in this great place with me. <laughs> the art is everywhere. It is framed beautifully. It it matches in a weird way because they are different styles or different artists, but it all matches. Thank you. Well, they kind of talk to each other, you know, and because my particular eye um, gravitates towards certain types of art and certain colors and what have you. So thank you. Yeah, I would say there's a certain harmony mm-hmm. to... Um, what you see here. And they're all, I mean, I very much believe that artists' spirit lives within the paintings. So if you have a particular piece of art, it's going to influence how you feel about life, happily or not. So you have to be careful what you buy. I'm feeling pretty great about life sitting in this house with you right now. good. Well, thank you. Because, again, this art, it's, it's subtle, it's colorful without being overwhelming. It uh, you've got you've got a picture of uh, looks like Frida. With, yes, uh, Frida Kahlo with and Diego. Diego. Uh huh. Um, everything. Oh my God! This fish. This fish lantern or lamp. 
Yes. <laughs> That's fantastic. That was uh, inspired by Klimt. Mm-hmm. And I bought that in Santa Fe, New Mexico wow. about four or five years ago. And it's fun, isn't it? It looks it looks so fragile though. Did you travel with it from? Uh, they they sent it to me. It's papier mâché, so it is a little fragile. But they knew how to pack it, so it arrived happily in one piece. And I'm a Pisces, oh, so that's kind of another reason why I picked that particular piece of art. Yeah. I see you have some tarot cards over here. Yes. Are you into this mysticics, whatever you call it, occult kind um, of thing? You know, there are so many ways of using the cards down to just a simple thing like picking a card, one card, and then I have a little guidebook that tells me what the card means if you pull it up right side up or upside down. And so occasionally we'll have fun with it, but mm-hmm. I don't really understand, you know, all the nuances of tarot. Right. But I enjoy going to mystics and, oh. you know, have them uh, tell me a little bit about what's going to happen, mm-hmm. you know, or for example, if I'm working on a book, of course, my first question always is, is it going to be a, a big hit? <laughs> and 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 I'm hoping that they'll say yes, but right. you never know, you know. Let's let's talk about books. Mm-hmm. Because is it true that you're known as the book lady of Brentwood? Well, I wish I were. I'm not sure I am, but I'm known as a ghostwriter and oh. my my reputation has grown over the years. Mm-hmm. Um so I'm kind of the go-to when someone is thinking about, or I'm one of the go-tos. I, I should be more modest than to say that I am the go-to. But, um, you know, someone is thinking about writing a memoir. Someone is thinking about a self-help book. Someone is thinking about um, an experience that they had that they feel they want to share with other people as a way of helping them. So they will come to me and to my company because I have a a group of seven journalists who work with me. Um, And it's a mix and match situation. You know, sometimes I take the project. Sometimes one of my associates will take the project. And it's important that there be a chemistry, you know, between myself and my author clients. Mm because it's such a personal service business. Mm-hmm. It's so, you become so engrossed in their life and in their life story. And um, if I had a dollar for every time somebody said, you know, you know me better than anybody else. You know me better than my family. I'd be rich, really. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. biographies and autobiographies are my favorite uh-huh. genre. Uh-huh. I obviously love people. And I love to hear about them. And so, especially rock and roll mm. people, I, mm. I like to hear their stories. Mm. And so, I'm, I, I usually have a, um, I mean, I call them books on tape, but audio book mm-hmm. of um, a famous person. And I love to learn about their life. Yes. And it's interesting because sometimes these these rock stars will say, Written by blah, 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 mm-hmm. and their actual writer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but sometimes they, they try to play it off like right. they did it all by themselves. Right. 
And sometimes you can tell because sometimes the writing is so much better than any of their lyrics <laughs> that you're like, hmm, what's going on over here? Is the is the main reason that people use ghostwriters, is it about image that they want everyone to think that they wrote it? Is is Well, you know, uh, things are changing in the world of ghostwriting to the point where sometimes you'll pick up a book by a famous person and it'll say with right and they will officially name the person who collaborated with them mm -hmm. uh, in fact there is an article in the new york times recently about kind of ghostwriters coming out of the closet and the prompt for that is um prince harry's new book called spare yes and he hired the same ghostwriters Andre Agassi to write his book and there's no secret about it mm -hmm. you know and if you look in the acknowledgement section of the book I'm sure that uh, the person who helped pen the book his name is you know front and center mm -hmm. I mean Trump you know the art of the deal <laughs> right. the guy actually rude the day he ever wrote that book because of what you know, ensued yeah. in terms of uh, Trump's life and and what you know what happened later. Mm -hmm. But um, my my perspective on it is, I'm happy if my client says, you know, I'd really like your name on the cover. But if they don't, just so long as they give me some kind of an acknowledgement, i.e., collaborator, editor. You know, I'm really fine with it. I mm -hmm. mean, I used to be a, a film and theater producer. Mm -hmm. And so I am very comfortable being behind the scenes. I don't need, you know, uh, the red carpet rolled out for me. Right. Un unless my client says, you know, I think there would be an advantage to having your name on this book. Yeah. And then we'll have a conversation. And usually I'll agree to it. Mm -hmm. um, but I always, tr my advice usually is that they stand on their own. On the other hand, um, I'm flattered if they want my name on the book as well. Mm -hmm. And if it helps, great. Mm -hmm. um, for example, the book that I did a couple of years ago um, for an actor named Cliff Simon, who comes from South Africa. He was Mr. South Africa. He had a career um, as the uh, star of the Moulin Rouge in Paris. Oh. Yes. And the book is called Paris Nights, My Year at the Moulin Rouge. And actually, I got to go to Paris and sit in the seat of uh one of the choreographers and I actually opened the drawer and peeked in to see what was <laughs> there. I was so curious. Um, and they sent me a bottle of champagne, you know, yes. to treat us to uh, something a little extra. But what was in the drawer? His glasses and some notes, nothing very interesting, mm. really. Um, but this, uh, this particular memoir, it says Cliff Simon with Lauren Stevens. Right. And we just had the best time working on this book. I mean, to get 
uh, behind the scenes of what happens at the Moulin Rouge, mm -hmm. um, how he got into the Moulin Rouge from, you know, growing up in Johannesburg, South Africa, um, and then what happened to him afterwards, how he established his career in television, which is one of the areas that I particularly love, is the entertainment industry. That I imagine um, collaborating on a biography, mm -hmm. a memoir, autobiography, mm -hmm. is you sit down for hours and hours and hours with a tape recorder, maybe a couple bottles of wine, and you, as a journalist, you kind of take it as 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 that kind of. Uh, of an attitude. Am, am I correct that you just ask a ton of questions? Absolutely. Uh, absent the bottle of wine, because I don't <laughs> think I would be very functioning after a few glasses on a really cheap date. <laughs> so um, typical, a typical memoir or book that we would do, 10 two-hour interviews kind of gets us the kernel of the book. Ten two-hour interviews. Uh -huh, so that's 20 hours. Mm -hmm. All of the interviews are recorded and transcribed. They become what I call the Bible. Mm -hmm. And that becomes the basis of the first draft of the book. Uh, are these are these 10 sessions all in a row, or do you take some breaks in between? How do you, how do you normally do I it? I try to do one a week, if possible. I, I love the idea of momentum. One, one two-hour session a week? Uh-huh. So, so this French guy, did you have to be in France for a whole summer? Oh, no. The, the trip to Paris was just to get a taste of Paris and the Moulin Rouge. Mm -hmm. um, and if someone is overseas or uh, we need to do something from, for practical reasons... We can do it all at once, mm -hmm. but most typically it's once a week. Um, after two hours, my eyes glaze over and so does theirs, <laughs> you know. I mean, yes. you can only keep up the energy for so long. That's right. And then, you know, you kind of lose it. Well, and that's why my producer says these are one-hour interviews. Well, that's perfect. Yeah. That's absolutely perfect. People can keep their energy up. You can keep your focus, mm -hmm. um, you know, other than looking around at my art. But, you know, we can have an intense, uh, intimate conversation yeah. in that time. But at a certain point, it sort of starts to melt. Let me ask you about um, about the, the near nearing the end. So you've got your Bible. You... Hope, you're probably taking notes along the way Absolutely. saying this part was great, this part was great. Um, when it's done, again, we come from journalism, mm -hmm. and the juicy stuff is what we want. But when it's yeah. somebody else's life, a lot of times they don't want the juicy stuff, correct? Well, you hit the nail on the head. Um, I'll take you through the other two steps, and then I'll address that question because... That's absolutely correct. Mm -hmm. um, so the first draft is done, you know, the first iteration of the manuscript. 
um, my author client then gets a chance to review all of it, comment, comment that they forgot something really important. Mm-hmm. We'll go back and pick up and do a few more interviews maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, we do a second draft. We repeat that process and then hopefully by the third round we have a a polished manuscript that's acceptable to the client that they love that um, reflects their voice which is the key to this whole thing what you want to create at the end of the day is a book that sounds exactly like the author client as if their voice is on the page so there's no interruption and it's authentic and the more you do this the better you get at capturing someone's voice their mm-hmm. sense of humor their their vocabulary even to the point where you might make something up but you know them so well <laughs> you know you're in their head mm-hmm. that there it's like did I say that? That sounds exactly like me, you know? <laughs> so that that's the gold, mm-hmm. and that's the goal. Yes. But the, to your question of the juicy stuff, sometimes what happens is I'll ask a question, and they'll say, turn off the recording. I really need to tell you this, but I don't want this in the book. Mm-hmm. You know, some deep, dark secret. Some, what we say in Yiddish, Shonda, some, you know, uh, something that would embarrass them, embarrass their family, embarrass a brother, a sister, a colleague, a whoever, you know. I had one client who did not want to reveal that his wife had been married before. Mm-hmm. Why that was, you know, a sensitive issue, I have no idea. <laughs> Nevertheless, so I, I take it two ways. One way is what my husband used to say to me when I was doing my mother's book, and that was the first memoir I ever did. I interviewed my mother. Oh, wow. And I came home one day and I said, oh, my God, Mom was telling me this story, and it didn't happen that way at all. It's like she made it up. And my husband said to me, listen, this is your mother's book. When you're writing your book, you can write whatever you want. But Mm. so long as you're in service to her story, this is the way it's going to be. And that can get a little frustrating. Is, is, Is that why some people call their books memoirs? No, memoir is a particular type. A genre of book, and I'll I'll address that in a minute. Good, because I want to finish up with this piece about the juicy stuff. Yes, because absolutely, the minute they say to you, "Turn off the recorder," you know that you're going to get something so juicy that you know you're like practically salivating. Yeah. Okay. So the other approach is to say to my author client. I understand, you know, why you're sensitive about this. Why don't we just leave it aside and we'll come back to it later 
And if after you've been through this process and you feel more comfortable with it and you realize that it's not the atom bomb Mm -hmm. that's going to go off, maybe you'll feel differently about it. And sometimes they do. Oh, good. So you are able to get those, you know, little incredible nuggets that give you more of an insight into, you know, what motivates them, what drives them, what bothers them, uh, why it bothers them. Um, And sometimes it becomes almost a relief. Mm. Now I've got it out there. Mm -hmm. I can look at it. I have more agency over it. I have more control over it. Um, It's not going to run my life. And and it's those those things are what makes them them. Of course, we don't want cookie cutter people. I don't want to read a cookie cutter no, people but book. If you've been told your whole life, don't ever tell anyone this. Yeah, you know, by a parent or a teacher or you know, whomever, mm-hmm. the police, <laughs> right? Your coach in college mm-hmm. who doesn't want you to say that the assistant coach molested you. Mm-hmm. Because it's going to be bad for them, and they're helping you get into your college of your choice. And if you put the finger on that person, all hell is going to break loose. So there's a lot. There are a lot of implications, and you have to decide, you know, how much risk you're going to take yeah. in, in doing this. But what's true is that very often your reader will sniff out. <laughs> when there's a cover-up, yeah, you know? And the importance of writing a book is to try to be as honest as you can be um, because that's what gives it the power. Mm-hmm. So you asked me a, another question, which I've now completely forgotten. I was under the assumption that a memoir mm-hmm. is an autobiography with a soft lens or the ability to fictionalize a little tiny bit. Okay. <clears throat> so an autobiography is I was born, then this happened, this happened, this happened, everything is fact-checked. Um, you know, you get to the end of it and you the person has one foot in the grave. <laughs> For example. Yeah. In a memoir, you can be much more um exclusive. You can decide that you're going to write just about a year in your life that was so important, so powerful, so impactful that that's what you want to do. Um, Can you be creative in how you tell that story? I mean, at a certain point, you cross a line where you're making things up. Right. You know, and you're making them up usually because you want them to be pretty (laughs) so that you know, it doesn't make you look bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you do that, eventually somebody's going to um, suss you out. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going to say, wait a minute, this did not happen this way and whatever, whatever. Yeah. So, but a memoir is a shorter slice of someone's life. Um, it can be... You know, something like, for example, um, the book by Cheryl Strayed, where she talks about hiking the Pacific Rim. 
Oh, yeah. And at the same time, she was dealing with the death of her mother or her father. I'm mm-hmm. sorry, I can't remember This was the movie was. that Reese Witherspoon... Reese Witherspoon. ...turned into Okay. A, yeah. So she started on the trail, and she ended on the trail. Right. And she shared her experiences of doing this. And I say, thank you, Cheryl, because I'm never going to do that. <laughs> right. You know? But... I was fascinated with what she learned as she, you know, spent that time in nature and faced her fears. And another one, for example, is the book Eat, Pray, Love. Mm -hmm. You know, she goes to Italy first and eats pasta. She goes to an ashram in India, and then she goes to Bali and meets the man of her dreams, who then she subsequently divorced. But that was another memoir. (laughs) You know, that was the the marriage that ended up not working out so well. Yeah. So a memoir can be very bracketed. So for example, with Paris Nights, we go back and forth somewhat, you know, to his teenage years and aftermath. But the the nugget of the book, the the most uh, concentrated part of that book is that year in Paris as an expat. Mm and what he learned on the streets and the trouble that he got into and all the crazy stuff and, you know, getting involved with diamond smugglers and all of this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So, um, and when I start working with a client, we talk about what is this book going to cover? You know, is it going to be from day one, I got born at Lenox Hill Hospital in Manhattan and... You know, my mother was pissed off because I was late. Um, Or is it going to be my first year at college and how I almost dropped out because of X, Y, and Z? Right. Yeah. So um, this comes up, believe it or not, from time to time in this podcast. Uh Uh-huh. Where after the interview happens, Yes. the the subject will call me Uh and say... That part about marijuana. Uh-huh. Can we cut that out? Oh, really? And I'm I'm a people pleaser. Uh-huh. I'm not doing this for fame and fortune. Mm-hmm. So I don't mind. Sure. But in the journalism world, we're, we weren't allowed to do that kind of mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. And there are people in my life that don't want me to cut out when people say the things because often that was it's maybe the, the best part that they... Yeah. Right, right. So when you're sitting down with these... These uh, clients of yours, Uh do you sometimes, I don't want to say fight for that nugget, but do you try to convince them? Do you try to ask them to get out of their own head and think about the bigger picture? Does this happen on almost every book of yours? I would say almost. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm a a very, you know, uh, I keep a soft hand, though. I don't hit somebody over the head. And I don't say, if you don't put this in the book, it's going to be lousy. No. Right. I, I, I never do that. Yeah. I just try and say, you know, if we included this fact or this episode, it would make you a much more sympathetic character. Oh. Yes. And they think about it. Because they're showing their humanity more? Yes. They're mm-hmm. showing their vulnerability, their humanity. They're showing something that other people can relate to. 
instead of everything is rosy and, right. and I've had this perfect life. Yes. You know, I mean, I've had a few little, you know, bumps along the road and there's no one that hasn't. That's right. Right. I mean, that's huma- being human. Yeah. You're going to have good times and bad. Yeah. What the intensity is of those. I have one client whose son fell in the swimming pool and was in a coma for five years. Oh. And he talked about it, you know, mm-hmm. and he talked that it, it really destroyed his marriage. Mm-hmm. I mean, it can, you know. Um, and he was amazingly open about it. But there was also many years between the time that it happened and the time that we were sitting down to talk about it having happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's another aspect of it is how much time has passed since this incident. But, you know, there are also people, and you know this, um, there's an incredible book called The The Body Keeps the Score Mm. about trauma that can be so ingrained that someone can just say a few words. It brings them right back to that emotion and that incident, and they just practically break down. Yeah. You know, I have a client who lived through the Holocaust Mm -hmm. and lost his father at Marzhenek. His father was pushed into a grave that he dug himself Mm. and shot in the back. And he, he, he was separated from his parents and put into the hands of strangers for two and a half years and was hidden in Lourdes, France, by the nuns and the priests. When he talks about that, it's very hard for him to get through it. Mm-hmm. And yet he wants to do it because he wants people to know, this is what happened. This is what happened to me. This is what could happen to you. This is, I mean, that expression, you know, those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. I'm not saying it quite correctly, yeah, yeah. but... You know, that's his motive. I mean, how can you deny the Holocaust happened? I am the living embodiment of that. I was, you know, so-and-so years old when this happened to me, Mm -hmm. and here's how I survived, and here's how people were kind to me, and here's how I got through it, and here's what my life looks like today. But I'm telling you, you, you pull one of those threads... And the whole sweater comes apart. switch gears to beautiful Brentwood. Hmm. When did you move here? Uh, We, I came to, I moved to California in 1980. Okay. From uh, Boston, Uh where I was working uh, in the mortgage banking business, believe it or not. And I was senior vice president of a mortgage banking firm. My clients were hospitals all over the country. I was sent out here to work with a hospital in San Francisco, Mount Sinai Medical Center, 
in the Haight-Ashbury area. Then I went down to San Diego. And I was here to um, meet with a hospital in Northridge. And my job was to package their loans, you know, the ma their borrowings, their tax-exempt revenue bonds, all the rest of it, mm -hmm. um, so that they could expand their facilities and whatnot. And I got back to Boston, and it was freezing cold. And it was, I ended up having to take an ice pick to break up the ice at the bottom of my driveway. And I thought, this just absolutely makes no sense at all. Why am I still living here? Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, um, I had gotten divorced and my husband and I had a little boy and it was a big schlep to go, you know, from Boston to Los Angeles so they could see one another. And I felt it was very important that my son be in close proximity to his father. Good for you. And so I interviewed a couple of different firms that were in the healthcare industry, which was sort of my métier at the time, and packed up the, you know, the wagon, found a place for my son to go to school, rented um, a house in the Palisades, which was literally the only place I knew. I'd okay. heard that Ronald Reagan lived in Pacific Palisades. <laughs> okay, so I'll go up there and I'll check it out. But after five plus years... Um, my son was accepted to the Brentwood Science Magnet School, which is a wonderful school, literally around the corner from where we're sitting. Mm -hmm. And he got in, and so I thought, you know, let me find a place to live in Brentwood. And this house was the first place that I looked. This house? Yes. I looked other places, but I liked the townhouse feeling of this. Mm -hmm. I like the greenery. I like the fact that it's a low-density project. I mean, today, well, there are 12 units in our complex. Today, there would be 30. For you sure. know, they would just pack it in. Yep. And literally, my son could run out the door, go down the alleyway, and there was school. So I moved here in... 86 or 87, I think. Oh. And I've lived here ever since. Wow. I've been a real, you know, stick in the mud. <laughs> I haven't, I haven't moved. Well, I, yeah. Why would you? Well, it, that's kind of it. Why would I? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, is, Brentwood is... has, ever, first of all, Brentwood itself, if you want to talk about Brentwood. I do. You know, is a wonderful community. Um. I go to the cleaner, and we have a conversation. I go to the farm shop, and the guy says, do you want the Arnold Palmer with the orange juice, or do you want it with the lemonade today? <laughs> and I created a new drink, an Arnold Palmer with orange juice. I'll have that. The cookies you're eating come from their incredible bakery down there. Um, the frame shop, you know, mm -hmm. Monica at the frame shop, um, <laughs> she and I just, you know, whenever I go in there, it's a conversation. We have, 
you know, what's happening. Her family is originally from France, so we have that in common. Um, the gas station, mm-hmm. you know, you want premium or regular today. <laughs> and it doesn't feel, I don't feel um, anonymous. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel very seen. Mm-hmm. The same thing with restaurants. You know, we go to Amici Brentwood and the maitre d' welcomes us and do you want your table over there or do you want your table over there, you mm-hmm. know? And we go um, to Baltaire. It's the same thing. I mean, it's just a lovely little community here. Mm-hmm. And it's its own... I mean, you mentioned that there are something like 200 neighborhoods in L.A. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many of them have that feeling of... It's not small town because you're dealing with people around you who are, you know, <laughs> very sophisticated, um, come from all over the world. Mm-hmm. That's another thing. There's a great diversity here in Brentwood. I'd say the one common denominator is probably people are of a certain median income here, mm-hmm. you know, in order to just afford to live here. I mean, if I were to try to buy this house today, you know, you'd probably forget it. But, yeah, you know, it's been so long um, that it's not an issue. You'd have to be a TikTok influencer to afford this place. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and I'm not sure that I'm the right age for that anymore. <laughs> you know, that's what I love about the Internet. There's space for everybody. Right. Right. Well, my friend Annie Corzin who's in her 80s, has, I think, 200,000 followers on TikTok. See? Yeah. Yeah. But, and she's really hit a note. Mm-hmm. You know, she's, it's amazing how, how well she has done with TikTok. So you moved here in the mid to late 80s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And because I'm a weirdo, I happen to know that Nicole Simpson lived very close to here. And um, and often, if I have an out-of-town guest, I, I say, are you interested in seeing where that happened? And they would sometimes say, why would I want to see that? And I sometimes would say, because I think it's interesting that this horrible tragedy happened on kind of one of the busiest roads in Brentwood, and nobody saw it. Well, that's not exactly true. People oh. did see it. Tell me. <laughs> well, do you want to sort of have the story? Sure. Okay, so the first part of my story mm-hmm. is that I was here alone in the house, and it was three or four in the morning. The night of the murders. Night of the murders. Okay. And there was a knock on the door. On your door? On my door. And I could hear the walkie-talkie of the police. Mm. Um, and they said, police, you know, and I kind of hesitated for a minute because there was no one home. You know, just me. My son was at, at college, I think, and my then-boyfriend wasn't here, and so I was alone. Were, were these uh, locked gates? No, they're what they are. It, they're it, what they are. It was open then. 
it was open then. So, so, so it wasn't unusual to get a knock on the door. Oh, yes, at four in the morning. But at that hour, it was unusual. It, hideously unusual. Okay. You know, and I'm thinking, oh, my God. You know, it was like an Edgar Allan Poe moment, right? <laughs> so I felt that this was a legitimate policeman. It wasn't somebody pretending to right. be a policeman. So I opened the door. And the guy said to me, and I don't remember if he was in a uniform or he was a detective, but either way, he said to me, Madam, there's been a murder in the neighborhood. And I said, what? And he said, yeah, two doors down from you. And I said, oh, and I don't know what swear word I said, but it was something. (laughs) And And the first thing I said, was it... A random killing. And he said, no, it was definitely aimed at these two people. And I said, how do you know that? And I think at that point, forgive me if I'm not exactly accurate, it could have been the next day, but I think he said it was the way they were killed. Mm -hmm. They both had their throats cut. Right. And I said, oh, my God. And then he said, did you hear anything? I said, absolutely not. I didn't hear a thing. I went to bed early. It was the night of the Tonys, Tony (laughs) Awards. And, you know, I'm a theater producer myself, have been, not now, but was. So, of course, I was interested. I remember watching the Tonys and then just going to bed. Mm -hmm. He said, you didn't hear a dog barking or anything else. I said, not nothing. So then, and I said, can you tell me who it was? They said, no. So the news came out by four o'clock the next afternoon. I recall that it was a holiday that day. And I was somewhere where there was a television going and they announced that it was Nicole Brown Simpson. And it was, you know, Ron, and they had come home from Metzaluna, and so on and so on. All right. So that began a three or four year circus here with people like, you know, coming by, wanting to see where, taking pictures. I mean, I got accosted in the market with someone saying, can you tell me where Nicole Brown Simpson lived? They knocked on my window of my car in the parking lot of the supermarket. Wow. And I said, no. (laughs) I said, and could you get out of my face? Good for you. You know, I cannot deal with this. Yeah. I remember there was a vigil and I was in my office and all of a sudden I hear these celestial sounds. I'm thinking, am I going crazy? (laughs) And I look out the window and the entire Bundy was full of people marching on the street holding candles as a, you know, I think it would have been maybe two or three weeks from the initial situation um, and somebody had organized this, maybe his, her sister or someone like that. Mm -hmm. Um, I used to see Nicole uh, drive down the alleyway with her Ferrari and she had a, Um, a license plate, late for a date, you know? Mm -hmm. And I never saw OJ. 
that whole time? Uh, uh, L, the number eight. L8, four, number, A, D, and then another eight. Right. That was, I think that was the so way So her it personalized was. license her plate. Her personalized license plate. So. Easy to recognize. Easy to recognize. The car itself, you know, is unusual. Red. Beautiful woman. Yeah, beautiful woman. You, you know, it's hard to miss her. <laughs> right. You know, but I never had any interaction with her whatsoever. Just occasionally I'd see her come in and I knew she lived there. Mm-hmm. Um, to the point of did anyone see anything? So there was a guy in our neighborhood who used to wash cars. And he he washed a car that belonged to someone right next door to me. His name was Robert. And being a car wash person, he knows cars. Right. So I run into him in the parking in our, you know, alley or actually in our driveway. Hi, Robert, how are you? And he goes, oh, I said, what's the matter? He said, I don't know what to do. I said, what do you mean you don't know what to do? He said, I saw the white Jeep at the end of the driveway. He did? And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I was walking my dog, and he also had a husky, I think. And he said, I saw the white Jeep at the end of the driveway, and I couldn't see who was in the car, but I recognized it because I've seen O.J. Simpson drive around here, and he had tinted windows. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I said, so what are you going to do about this? He said, I don't know. I said, you have to go and tell the DA. Mm -hmm. So he did, and they just made mincemeat of him on the witness stand. Yeah. Oh. It was like the worst day of his life. You know, how do you know it was him? And they just really took this, him through the this was, grinder. Uh, this was OJ's dream team that yes. did this to him. Yes, it was Johnny, Johnny Cochran, Cochran. It was Lee Bailey. It was all of them. Yeah. You know, I'm sure if you looked at the tape of the proceedings, you might remember. I'm, I'm going to, as soon as I go yes. home, I'm going to yes. look it up. Yeah. But the How point sad. being, it was so sad. It was so sad. Did you watch this as it was happening? No, I didn't. I didn't see that. Were you interested in watching the trial at I all? I watched a little bit of it. And then I, uh, we went to Aspen to get out of here, you know, because it was still a circus. I mean, every day people were coming, people with their baby carriages. I mean, it was the worst juju you, had, you can you imagine. Had to leave, you had to leave we Brentwood. We left. So we left Brentwood, we flew to Aspen, we are checking into the hotel, I think it was the Ritz-Carlton or something, I can't remember, and I said, they said, oh, we're so glad you're here, and welcome, welcome, and I think maybe he even saw my address, Bundy, Mm. and brought it up, and I said, listen, we just want to get out of there, we want to get away. He said, let me do you a favor. We'll give you a suite. You know, How I'm, nice. sure it, I'm sure you've just had a terrible time. And I said, yes, I had a really, t- we've had a really bad time. Our beautiful neighborhood has been turned upside down. The TV cameras are here all the time. The mm-hmm. tourists are coming. And this 
went on for close to three and a half, four years. And, you know, my story is only one of, you could probably pick, well, anybody who was here at that time Mm -hmm. would have a story to tell. Because first of all, the inspectors, you know, the, the detectives combed the neighborhood trying to find anybody who had seen anything or heard anything. Mm-hmm. And then we were, you know, the victims of all of this circus to the point where, you know, they've changed the number on her, you know, on her townhouse. I it's, didn't know that. Yeah. It's no longer whatever the number was. It's oh. a different number. And then they bought OJ's house and tore it down. Tore it down. On Rockingham, I think? Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Yes. Huh. Which is which is interesting because Brentwood is filled with celebrities, and this is the type of celebrity you never want in your neighborhood. Well, it's not. not it's infamous. Yeah. It's, and you don't want that. It's not the situation you ever, you know, you ever want to confront. Mm-hmm. I mean, those poor children. Yeah. You know, the, the whole family. Um, mm-hmm. Who also went to this school around the corner, right? You know, I don't know where they went. Mm -hmm. I don't know where they went. Did you ever eat at Metzaluna? I think I did once or twice. It it wasn't my type of place. Right. You know, not not particularly. Yeah. 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 Did you ever run into OJ before any of this? No. So even though he lived in Brentwood, your paths never crossed? Never. I mean, and that is the other aspect of Brentwood is that you can be as anonymous as you want. I mean, I don't know, one day I saw Henry Winkler over at the farm shop. I've seen um, Harrison Ford walking down Montana. Um, You know, some of these celebrity kids go to the school that my son went to, the Brentwood School, Mm -hmm. you know, which is kind of a magnet for um, celebrity kids, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's a a wonderful school. That's another thing. Brentwood School is a real phenom. It's a phenomenal resource for the town, um, and there's there. I mean, no, there are a lot. There are uh, quite a few excellent Archer Archer School for Girls. My son taught there mm. for a number of years while he was doing on his teaching stint. Um, loved the school. Um, he coached their debate team. You know, he's been very involved and very involved with Brentwood as an alum. You know, Mm -hmm. I I ask people in every neighborhood this question, Mm -hmm. and it's... It's it's a little sensitive knowing that there was a murder yeah. very close to here. Yeah. But people who don't live in LA or people who are thinking about raising a family often say there's no way I would have kids in and raise them in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. But you intended to raise your son here yes. and you wanted him here. Yes. Are you glad that you did? Is this is this is Brentwood is LA a good place to raise kids, do you think? Today? Well, even then. When, when, in the 80s, when you were here Yeah, originally. 80s and 90s. He, yeah. went, he went to college in 93. 
and graduated in 97. Okay. So, um, you know, he, I mean, he had the best experience in every possible way, meeting kids from all different socioeconomic areas because Brentwood has a deliberate scholarship program, um, meeting kids of different ethnic backgrounds, which I think is so important in the world today. You mm -hmm. know, you just have to open your eyes and understand other people's, you know, faiths and traditions. And, you know, you can't just stay in your own little box and keep yourself uh, removed just because you don't, you think of someone else as the other. Well, yeah. guess what? You know, that's not the case. <laughs> right. Um, would I come here today? I mean, as I told you, my principal motivation, my ex-husband was already working in L.A. in the entertainment industry, and I was very committed to the idea of my son having a father that would be present. So I probably would make the same decision. Mm -hmm. And I personally have absolutely loved living in this city. I find it to be incredibly uh, not only diverse, but, um, you know, the culture here is just absolutely phenomenal. My business is phenomenal um, because, you know, there are so many interesting people who want to tell their story. Like that. And, um, it, you know, I can't imagine another city, really, where I would have such a wide variety of clients. I mean, I'm always meeting, you know, new people. Now, of course, my clientele is all over the country. Good. Which is interesting. You know, Zoom has just changed my life completely. You do these, these uh, two-hour yes. sessions on Zoom now? Yes. Yes. Oh. Yes. And that's okay. And that's okay. Should I consider Zoom? Because I like being in people's living rooms and seeing you them face-to-face. You can face definitely face. do Zoom. You don't have to schlep around. Unless you want to. I mean, you know. You're the expert. Um, you can easily do it. On Zoom. Okay. You know, because of COVID. Yeah. I mean, you've heard this a million times. You know, people have gotten very used to the technology mm -hmm. of uh, being on Zoom. Yeah. Um, I, two years ago, you know, I also write under my own name and I've, I've published a novel last year and I'm working on another one now. And I was invited to Montana, to the Montana Book Festival. And because of COVID, they could not have it in person. I was so bummed. I want, I'd never been to Montana. I was going to go to Missoula. You know, I was going to see the, the mountains. Yeah. I was going to go to Glacier National Park. No way. So they did it on Zoom. Uh -huh. And so I was a guest uh -huh. of the Montana Book Festival. And I think I had 100 people tuning in you know, to my conversation with the head of the English department at the University of Montana at Missoula, Judy Blunt, who's a phenomenal teacher and writer and all the rest of it. Hey, you know, it was a piece of cake. 
it was just wonderful. I mean, my clients right now, I have a client in Florida. I have a client in North Carolina. I have a client in uh, um, New Jersey. You know, I'm just really all over the place. Mm -hmm. And it's... It's, it's super easy, and people get used to it. Maybe at the beginning they might have a little trepidation, you know, and the technology might feel a little foreign to them. Yeah. But now it's hi, you know. <laughs> um, and, you know, Tuesday is so-and-so's day, and Thursday is so-and-so's day. Mm -hmm. This whole book, um, this is called Thrown Upon the World, and it's a book, I mean, it's a doorstopper. It's 500-plus pages. Wow. My author clients are in New Jersey. Um, the story is about a Viennese family who escapes Vienna during just after Kristallnacht, and they find their way to Shanghai. Ooh. And the children of uh, a Chinese family, a young girl, and the son of the Viennese family meet at the Shanghai Conservatory of Music, fall in love, marry secretly, end up in a displaced person camp outside of Vienna. This whole book was written once I met them initially, once I met my clients initially. I, I was interviewed by them in sort of a dog and pony show. They had three potential writers that they were considering, and it was very clever. They asked each one of us to write a chapter. Oh. The same chapter based on information that they gave us and and then they read it you know what we turned in and based on that sample they selected in this case they selected me mm -hmm. so then I went back to New Jersey met with them for four days to go through oh my god 12 chairs of documents they had a huge dining room table and 12 chairs around it and each chair had a pile of archival material but once I did that I started writing and every week we'd meet and we went to go to meetings and we looked at the same document and bing it a bang and a boom this is going to be um hopefully uh a eight or ten part series for television fantastic yeah uh-huh writer's block you don't seem to have it no you are. You wrote a, 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 a. You just published a book for young people. Uh, you're writing very, very serious books. Um, I would think when you're telling somebody else's story, it might be even harder to write because this isn't your passion. This isn't your, you know, thing. And yet you're able to knock it out. What advice would you give to writers out there about writer's box? Have you, have you ever encountered it ever? No. <laughs> but I will also address the question of it's not my passion, you know, the story. That's not true. It is my passion. It becomes your passion. My passion is to help people tell the story that they want to tell. Great. I am in service to them. And however I can help them whether it's coaching them, you know, because sometimes I'll just, they'll do a check-in, you know, they're writing their own story, but they need kind of a, a coach, mm -hmm. you know, somebody who says, keep going, or they'll send me something they've written and they'll ask me to, 
you know, edit it for them, or I do soup to nuts. You know, I start from, and then you were born, and then we decide, you know, what what's going to be in the story and not in the story. So mm-hmm. it's my passion. Yeah. And I think that is the key. The other thing is um, I get paid to do it. Yes. So it, 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 that's a big motivator. And um, when I write my own books and my own essays and my own short stories, I want to get published. I am not satisfied just having something sitting in my drawer. There are writers who are fine with that. If their words never saw the light of day, they would, you know, they would find a way to make peace with themselves. Emily Dickinson didn't care. Yeah. You're not Emily Dickinson. No. (laughs) I care big time. You know, I I want to be published. I want people to um, share the journey you know, that I'm on, for better or worse, yes. warts and all. So um, I, and as far as advice to somebody who has writer's block, um, take a class, go to UCLA. That's another thing. I mean, we're right around the corner. UCLA has wonderful teachers. UCLA Extension. Yeah, UCLA right. Extension. Go take a class. That's how I started when I decided I was going to seriously be a writer. Really? Yes. Uh-huh. Right there in the village. Right in the village. I How took a class that? with Barbara Abercrombie on the personal essay. And I had written my whole life for business. Yeah. You know, speeches, proposals. I mean, I think being a good writer is one of the most important aspects of a person's career. You know, they they really need to know how to express their ideas. Mm-hmm. So key, but take a class, you know, join a writing group of like-minded people who are all wanting to get good feedback and motivation and read. I mean, I read on average, you're not going to believe this, but probably three books a week. (gasps) Yeah. Wow. Did you count how many you read last year? I did one year when we were when we were living in um, the temporary housing after my house burned down, mm-hmm. and it was easy to count because the only books that were there are the ones that I was buying that year, and that year I think I read ninety books. Oh. Yeah, so that was a pretty good chunk. My friend, I, my friend Bree did eighty eight last year. Uh-huh. That's good. while raising a, a toddler. Yeah, and yeah. working. Uh-huh. And and I thought. That was impossible to break, but you broke it. And I love to read different genre. The only genre that I really don't like is fantasy. I'm not big on fantasy, but dystopian, memoir, mysteries. Oh, my God. I love mysteries. Let's wrap it up with this then. Okay. What was your favorite book of 2022? Oh, boy. Um, uh, um, Lessons in Chemistry. I don't it's know. It's a this. novel. Uh huh. It's on everybody's bestseller list. It was a popular book. It's super popular. Super popular. Lessons in Chemistry. Phenomenal book. I I will go to my Libby app. Yeah. And it, hopefully there's an audio book if it's been popular. It the, could be. 
There could be. Are any of your books, uh, have they turned into audio uh, versions? Some of them are. I think Paris Nights is. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the ones that I have right in front of me. Yeah. Um, the, the the young uh, the young uh, uh, what do they call it the YT uh, the uh, uh, young adult young y- YA uh huh I didn't I didn't write a young adult <laughs> no that's the one genre that I have not really dipped into but it's what was your most recent book that you wrote oh all sorrows can be born it's a historical fiction based on my husband's family story in Japan yeah. That has to be the hardest genre there is, right? Well, when you're basing it on someone that you love, yeah. But the historical part. <laughs> oh, the historical part, no. I mean, that's re- easy. research is, if you, if you can't be a good researcher, uh, you're going to have problems writing historical fiction. <laughs> you know, you, you kind of have to put yourself back in time and back in place. Like the book that I did for uh, the Colbers, Shanghai in the 40s, you know? I mean, Google, thank God. Yeah. For Google. You can see what the streets looked like in Shanghai in the 40s. Hmm. You know, you just have to learn the tricks. Yeah. Well, Lauren, thank you for telling us what Brentwood was in the 80s, what it is today. And I think you are the type of person that anybody would feel lucky to run into at uh, the Ralphs on Wilshire, or uh, at the farm. Thank you, Tony. <laughs> and you're a great interviewer. You could do my job. I've already got this one, but thank you. I know you do. You've got a huge plan ahead of you. <laughs> and thank you for the cookies. Oh, you're so welcome. We have to let you take a couple with Ooh, you. Ooh, thank you. Yes. And I'm going to take some pictures of you in front of some of this art, if that's okay, all right. Okay, sure. All right. Sure. Thank you. Okay. How great was Lauren? You know who we'd give giant cookies to if they ever visited? Our Patreons. When you stoke us, you're saying, Tony, Jordan, no one does what you do. Here's a whole bunch of money to keep things going. So shout out to our Patreons, Nancy Rommelman, Sean Atlow, Matt Mills, Sean Wallace, Greg and Molly, Jamie Taylor, Mark Johnson, Kira Ann, Barney Grinky. Ben Welsh, Jen Adams, Trevor Wilson, Bree Wild, Dougie Gyro, Christina Up North, Robin Carey, Adam Shorn, and Ben from Down Under. To be a Patreon, just go to patreon.com slash here in LA and give till it hurts. Also, shout out to our Angelinos, like our newest one, Lisa. To be an Angelino, all you got to do is PayPal or Venmo. <laughs> PayPal or Venmo. You can try to Venpal if you want. Just give 25 bucks or more and we'll list you on the Here in LA website or Medium blog forever. Just send your hard-earned cash to busblog at gmail.com. Want to support us, but that Tesla stock just hasn't really truly bounced back? You can still help, Elon. Post your favorite episode on your Facebook. Oh my God, post two. Tweet something nice about this. In fact, anytime you see me tweet an episode, retweet it. And for God's sake, tell your friends. Tell them how Here in LA is spelled. That's H-E-A-R in L-A. And then it's on Apple Podcasts and Google and, oh my God, even Amazon. Here in L-A is produced by myself, Tony Pierce, and a man who I should have shared those cookies with, Jordan Katz. 
Editing, mixing, and music supervision by Jordan Katz. Songs by Orgone and Jordan Katz. Thanks to Cindy for creating the logo, Jen for inspiring this, and Steve Rohr, who told us all about Lauren. Thanks, Thanks Steve. Steve.